Today's episode is sponsored by Relief Factor. Pain from everyday living, exercise, or just getting older is one of the leading causes of trips to the doctor and sleepless nights. It interferes with daily activities and can even keep us from spending time with the people we love. If you have everyday pain, it stands to reason you need something you can feel comfortable with taking every day. That's why doctors invented 100% drug-free relief factor. Now, tens of thousands of customers are using Relief Factor every day to become mostly or completely pain-free. 100% drug-free Relief Factor features four key ingredients that each work on a different metabolic pathway to support your body's natural healing processes to respond to pain and inflammation. Now, you can try Relief Factor too. The three-week quick start, which is a retail price of almost $70, is now available to our listeners for just $19.95. Head to the link in our show notes to find out more. Start your journey to better health and less pain today with Relief Factor. The Oracle Network. Welcome to Ye Old Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very tired. Very, very tired. Ready to start the week, but also not ready in the slightest. I feel that. Yeah. And you had an even bigger week than I did. We're referring to the fact that this past week I volunteered at the Girl Scout camp, which I attended with both of my girls. And thankfully, like half the time was spent in like a wooded area. So it was pretty shaded. Oh, nice. That's good. Because it was hot. It was super hot. Mm-hmm. I feel like I was a little dehydrated on Friday. Okay. And I overheated a bit when we were running errands on Saturday and then took a nap so I could feel better. Yeah, that makes sense. I still don't feel 100% hydrated, but I'll get there. Yeah. I'll get there. So, yeah. But enough about being in the wilderness. Let's talk about crime. Crime. Our favorite. This is the week before our birthday month. Yep. So, I know we're done with listener requests, but... My friend Ashley, who is my co-host on Pineapple Pizza, one of my co-hosts on Pineapple Pizza, and she's also one of the hosts of Studying Scarlet, she sent me this story and she was like, I need you to cover this. And I like scanned the article she sent me Mm -hmm. and I said, hell yes, I need to cover this. So this is for you, Ashley. This week, we're going to be talking about Captain William Morgan, not to be confused with the rum guy. (laughs) Oh, I was going to say, of the rum fame? No. Of the rum fortune? No, not the same guy. <laughs> of the rum pirate pose fortune? No, sadly, no. Baron of the rum? Rum Baron? Baron von Rumspringer. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly the Amish get involved and everything gets weird. All right, so he's not Captain Morgan in that way. He's not modern no. day Captain Morgan. No. Got it. A different type of Captain Morgan. Got it. So information was pulled from the following sources, a 2020 Jerry Walton blog post, a 2019 History.com article by Martin Stazano, 2015 Slate article by Andrew Burt, founder of the Day website, Historical Society of the New York Courts website, Union to Disunion website article. I don't want to read you the title of this, so that'll give it away. But a piece that was written by William Morgan himself. Oh, and I skimmed that because it was 203 pages and girl ain't got time for that. How so, dare you? Those were the words out of the horse's mouth. Listen, if you were to <laughs> click the link and see this thing on Project <laughs> Gutenberg, you tell me that you would sit there and read those 203 pages. I wouldn't because because you wouldn't. No. Nope. So I skimmed it and it was fine. And last right. but not least, Wikipedia and links to all these articles will be included in the show notes. So William Morgan was born in Culpeper, Virginia, in August of 1774. As a young man, he traveled quite frequently and was a bricklayer and stonecutter by trade. Mm. And he used his meager savings to open a store in Richmond, but it didn't last. 
Yeah, hard times. Hard times. William eventually settled in Rochester, New York, where it said he fought in the War of 1812. He would have been 38 at the time, if this is true, as it's been contested. Oh, well, yeah, he's kind of older. Yeah. Older. I mean, they probably still, but. Yeah, so there are conflicting reports of his time serving during the war. Some say he earned the title of captain while in the Navy, and others claim he fought against the British as a pirate seeking his fortune before he was pardoned by the president following the war. Oh, well. So. So in that sense, maybe he is Captain Morgan, but he was only Captain Morgan for like a few years. An mm, illegitimate. Yeah. And if you see this guy, I don't think he would have had all that glorious hair that Captain Morgan does. So that's true. Unless he got a fancy wig, which is also a possibility. It so. was not uncommon at the time. Is he? Isn't he? We'll never know. <laughs> what we do know is that he married a woman named Lucinda Pendleton. In October of 1819, when William was in his mid-40s and Lucinda was 19. Gross. He could have been her dad. Yeah. Not okay. Pair had two children together, Lucinda Wesley Morgan and Thomas Jefferson Morgan. And I couldn't find the years of their births or really anything else about them. That was the extent of what I could find. I appreciate the Lucinda Jr. Yes. She's like, if I got to marry you, you gross old man. I'm going to have a junior. (laughs) (laughs) This is for me. It's my consolation. This is for me. This one is mine. William continued his wandering lifestyle even after his marriage, moving his family all around the New York countryside. Cool. Before moving to Toronto, Canada, where he tried his hand as a brewer and was actually quite successful for a time. Interesting. He and his family were left in poverty after it was destroyed in a fire. Yeah. Alcohol's flammable. What? So are the wood barrels it generally hangs out in. So that they didn't have ye old insurance in Can- in Canada at the time. How dare you come in here with your logic? <laughs> your science. There was no farmers. No bump it up for them. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like, yeah, that burned. <laughs> the family eventually settled in Batavia, New York a small town near Rochester, where William worked as a stoneworker. William was often viewed as uneducated, careless, and a known drunk and swindler. So, great. What? No, not that guy. A failed businessman, he often found himself at the local jail for drunkenness and would have to be bailed out by a Masonic charity. Ooh. Yeah. It's been contested whether William was actually a Freemason, as he claimed that he had been inducted into the Freemasons while living in Toronto when he ran his brewery, which could make sense because he made a lot of money while he was doing his brewery. However, the members of Leroy's Western Star Chapter Number 33 Lodge in Leroy, or is it Leroy? I like Leroy because it sounds funnier. In Leroy, New York refused to believe that someone of William's character could possibly have reached the level of a royal arch mason within their secret society. William had submitted and signed a petition to set up a new lodge in Batavia, but the masons in charge of building the lodge wrote a second petition that William wasn't given an opportunity to sign. Mm. It was this petition that was submitted to the Grand Chapter, and when the Batavia Charter was granted, William found that his name wasn't listed amongst the members. Ouch. It's kind of harsh. Yeah. Pissed by how he was being treated by the members of the local lodge, William decided to write a tell-all book regarding the real practices and beliefs of the Freemasons. Oh, snap. Okay, yeah. that escalated quickly. Like, yeah. Real quick. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. The timing of this tell-all couldn't have been more perfect. During the quote-unquote era of good feelings under President James Monroe, the secret society began to come under suspicion and many developed a mistrust of Masons in general. Following the deaths of the last of the founding fathers, which were Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, who both died on July 4th, 1826, many were unclear how democracy would play out as many of the founders had also been Masons. Interesting. That's an idea. Yeah. Okay. William made the acquaintance of a man named David Cade Miller, 
a publisher of Batavia, New York's Republican advocate newspaper. During the summer of 1826, the pair bonded over their mutual hatred of Freemasonry. Fun. Nothing nothing spells uh, friendship like bonding over something you hate. Yes, which they believed stood for everything that was wrong with elitist society in modern-day America. I smell history repeating. What? Over and over. So the pair decided that they would work together to expose the organization and all of its secrets to the world. <laughs> I don't know, but but for me, it just it, it's like Mean Girls when they found the burn book, and they're gonna expose everyone. <laughs> they're gonna expose them for like look at how horrible they are. Granted, they could have been like really horrible, but <laughs> yeah, not Tina Fey level. Yeah, but so William was guaranteed a quarter of the profits made. And other backers of the book, who included David Miller himself, John Davids, who was William's landlord, and Russell Dyer, entered into a $500,000 bond with William to guarantee that his book would be published. How much would that have been? So $500,000 in 1826 would have been... To guarantee that the book be published. Was published would be... $13,722,000 today. Yeah, that's uh, no chump change, especially considering like right before this, he was known as like the broke town drunk. Yep. So going from super four to 13 million, it'd be hard to change your path. Yep. So for context, Freemasonry has been around for centuries and started in England and Scotland sometime in the 1500s as a simple trade organization of local stoneworkers. Over time, it took on a more philosophical lens and a sense of reason and dedication to deism began to become more of the focus. Science. Science. Science is the pursuit of knowledge. Secret knowledge. Oh, the secret. The belief that enlightenment can be achieved through the observation and study of the Bible rather than miracles or revelations became the focus, and this fraternity would soon expand around the globe, its ceremonies and rituals taking place completely in secret, although outwardly the organization was said to be about civic-mindedness, communal learning, and religious tolerance. Hmm. I feel like there should always be a little asterisk at the top. Yep. For... Cis white men of certain stature at the time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which leads me to my next point. Except the Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> you are not welcome. <laughs> no Marys allowed. The organization was composed mainly of men who were part of the middle and upper class such as doctors, lawyers, successful businessmen, and others who had money and time to spare on such an elite social club. Fun fact, 13 of the 39 founders of the Constitution were card-carrying members of the Freemasons, and its popularity only continued to rise since the founding of our nation. I hope they had cards. I just put that in there because it sounded fancy. They really have cards. I hope they did. And they'd be like, this oh is God. my card. And it's like nothing on it because it's a They're secret. Like, Hi, I, I was I was the president of the United States once. And then women were like, hmm. And then they're like, I was also a Freemason. And they're like, oh, <laughs> tell that's me your secret. Take it in for ladies. That card. Yeah. Benjamin Franklin was one of them. It was like Benjamin is Franklin, it? George Washington, Thomas Jefferson and John Quincy Adams. In New York, Governor DeWitt Clinton was also a Mason, not to mention the highest ranking Mason in the country, having at one time been the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of New York. I always want to say Grand Wizard. I know, I do too. And then I'm like, that's wrong. That's (laughs) really wrong. That's dangerous. That's another white organization. (laughs) It's a different kind of secret society. (laughs) A really bad one. Mm hmm. It was estimated that at one point, over half the people who held public office in New York were members of the Masons. In August of 1826, William published an article in The Advocate where he wrote that he had evidence against Masons that compelled him and an unnamed collaborator, quote, to an act of justice to ourselves and to the public, end quote. So it was a spicy expose, mm-hmm. essentially. Yes. 
Even though he wasn't a member, William was able to convince actual members of his local Masonic lodge that he was, in fact, a member, which allowed him to gain access and witness the variety of ceremonies that they conducted, which he used as he wrote his book. Local groups of concerned Mason members soon started to harass William and David, accusing them of petty debt, which ended up with William being once again placed in jail. Yeah, didn't get the $13 million yet. And it wasn't long before strange men started to visit the villages of Ontario County where the pair lived, which not only put the pair on edge, but everyone else in the towns as well. Yeah, I would be really scared being one of their, like, kids or their spouse. Nothing like a bunch of creepy men creeping around your house to make you feel comfortable. Make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Mm-hmm. On September 8th, 1826, a group of Masons approached the print shop where David worked. Upon arriving, they were surprised to find that William had assembled a gang of his own that had a variety of firearms, and they were ready to rumble. Oh, dang. That escalated quickly. Yeah. Strangers from strangers in town to a street fight. <laughs> like like yeah. the same ones, um, <laughs> like Ron Burgundy fighting the other. That's what um, I was thinking. studio. <laughs> Let's rumble. <laughs> Where did you find a trident? <laughs> so finding themselves outnumbered and outgunned, the Masons retreated. But two nights later on September 10th, William's office suddenly burst into flames. Thankfully, the fire was detected early and no lasting damage was made. And upon investigation of the cause of the fire, cotton balls that had been dipped in turpentine were found all over the print shop. I'm sorry, but somebody took that much time to throw individual cotton balls soaked in turpentine to set something on fire. I picture them just sending like the most junior member of the Masonic Lodge and they're just like, Carl, this is your this is your job. He's just On the morning of September eleventh, eighteen twenty six. William was abducted from his home in Batavia, New York, by around a half dozen Masons who held an arrest warrant for petty larceny, which the charge was stealing a shirt and a tie that the owner of a local tavern, Mr. Ebenezer C. Kingsley, had loaned him the day before. Convenient. William was soon thrown into a Canandaigua jail about 50 miles or 80.5 kilometers away from his home. At first, William wasn't worried. He testified that he'd simply forgotten to return the items and he would be happy to do so. After this, the charges were dropped and he was released after David helped post his bail. But that freedom wouldn't last for long. Of course not. He was soon arrested again for a debt of $2.65, which would be around $72 today, for a tavern bill that he owed a man named Aaron Ackley. Unfortunately for William, he wasn't able to talk his way out of these charges and he had to spend the night in jail. Mm. Later that evening, the jailer's wife, Mrs. Hall, spoke with Lawton Lawson, who asked if William was being held at the jail. Lawton, a mason and the mastermind behind William's kidnapping, Fun. had no intention of actually setting William free. Of course not. Mrs. Hall refused to take the money that Lawton provided to post William's bail and went in search of her husband, Israel R. Hall, so he could handle the matter. Unable to find her husband, Lawton left and returned with a man he said was named Foster, and he offered to pay her $3, which is $82 today, for William's release. So more than what the bail was. Okay. Again, she refused. After Lawton and Foster left... Lawton returned later, even more determined to get his hands on William. Mrs. Hall once again refused to release him, so Lawton left and came back with Colonel Edward Sawyer, who told her to take the money and let William go. Ew. Being the badass that she is, Mrs. Hall still refused to release William. Okay. Lawton then sought out the help of Nicholas G. Chesborough. I was going to say Cage. (laughs) (laughs) Nicholas G. Cage. And he offered her the Declaration of Independence (laughs) in exchange for her husband. (laughs) To which she quickly said, yes. I love freedom and independence and declarations of independence. 
after the two talked, Nicholas talked to Mrs. Hall and told her that Lawton was anxious to free William and that she should allow him to do so. She finally relented, let William out of his cell, and the men all appeared to leave in a quote-unquote friendly manner. Mm-hmm. She then stated that, quote, before she could get the door of Morgan's room locked, that's William's last name, she mm-hmm. heard the cry of murder and rushed to the front door, end quote. Yeah. Mrs. Hall is quoted in the Middlebury Free Press as stating the following, quote, Morgan was in the middle and evidently struggling to get free. His hat was off and he was struggling to get away. The other two had hold of him by his arms and to all appearance were dragging him along. While they were passing on to the east, she heard a rap on the curb of the well and about the same time heard the cry of murder once or twice, end quote. Oh, that would make you feel good. No. After his release, William was forced into a waiting carriage and witnesses claimed that he was screaming murder as he was dragged away. This would be the last time that anyone saw William alive. That's so sad. Although many rumors circulated regarding what happened to him, none really know what became of William following his abduction. The most widely accepted account is that he was taken in a boat to the middle of the Niagara River, thrown overboard, and drowned. Another version claims that he was paid a large sum of money to not publish his book and then disappeared, quote unquote, into another country. Mm, yeah, the, the usual. Yeah. yeah. One group of Masons claimed that William wasn't dead, but had been paid $500 or about $13,722 today to leave New York and never come back. There were some claims that he was seen in other countries, but nothing that could be substantiated. Hmm. The carriage that had been used to abduct William arrived at Fort Niagara two days after his abduction, and it arrived on September 13, 1826. No one saw him leave the carriage, but they know that's the carriage that he was in, because everybody else who had abducted him was in the carriage. Fun. So he's the only one who left the party early. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. William wasn't the Masons' only target. David soon found himself being hounded by Masons as well. On September 12th, around 70 armed Masons gathered at a tavern while the police constable attempted to arrest David on questionable charges. The constable took David to Leroy, a a nearby town, but David was soon joined by his lawyer and an armed posse who took him back home to Batavia after the charges against him fell through. With this failure on the Masons' part, the story of David's arrest spread like wildfire amongst the villages and towns near Batavia. Mm-hmm. Loose ends, like William's family, would paint the Masons in a horrible light, considering Lucinda now had to find a way to support herself and her two children without her husband. Right, because he left. Because he left, quote-unquote. William's abduction at the hands of Masons started a movement amongst the residents of Batavia and the surrounding towns. They were angered about the fact that this powerful secret society could bend the laws that govern them to their whims in order to silence those they wished. Mm-hmm. Shortly after William's disappearance, David published William's book, quote, in the absence of the author who was kidnapped and carried away from the village of Batavia on the 11th day of September, 1826, by a number of Freemasons, end quote. And I'm going to read you a couple quotes from the book. There were a couple sections where I was like, all right, this is pretty shady. I want to include this. Okay. So this first one's kind of long. Quote, I, and then you share their name, of Mm -hmm. my own free will and accord in presence of Almighty God and this worshipful lodge of free and accepted Masons Mm -hmm. dedicated to God and held forth in the holy order of St. John do hereby and hereon most solemnly and sincerely promise and swear that I will always hail, ever conceal, and never reveal any part or parts, art or arts, point or points of the secrets, arts, and mysteries of ancient Freemasonry, which I have received, am about to receive, or may hereafter be instructed in, to any person or persons in the known world except it be a true and lawful brother Mason or within the body of a just and lawfully constituted lodge of such and not unto him nor unto them whom I shall hear so to be, but unto them only after strict trial and due examination or lawful information. That was the longest goddamn sentence I've ever read in my life. Yeah. Wow. 
Furthermore, do I promise and swear that I will not write, print, stamp, stain, hew, cut, carve, indent, paint, or engrave it on anything movable or immovable under the whole canopy of heaven, whereby or whereon the least letter, figure, character, mark, stain, shadow, or resemblance of the same may become legible or intelligible to myself or any other person in the known world, whereby the secrets of masonry may be unlawfully obtained through my unworthiness. To all which I do most solemnly and sincerely promise and swear, without the least equivocation, mental reservation, or self-evasion of mind in me, whatever, binding myself under no less penalty than to have my throat cut across, my tongue torn out by the roots, and my body buried in the rough sands of the sea at low water mark, where the tide ebbs and flows in 24 hours. So help me God and keep me steadfast in the true performance of the same. End quote. So that's how William died. Probably. If he was a Mason at one point. And here's another, this is a call and response. So to whom did our ancient brethren dedicate their lodges? To King Solomon. Why so? Because King Solomon was our most ancient grandmaster. If you remember the Bible, wasn't King Solomon the one that was like, cut the baby in half if you can't yeah. figure out whose child it is? Yep. 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 And the last call and response, and this is the last quote that I have. What is the penalty of an imposter to have his right hand chopped off? Poor William. I think probably all of that happened to him. Yeah. So the book which I mentioned before is 203 pages, includes tons of language about the rites and the call and response chants that must be performed, not only for each meeting, but if you're a member of the following. This is a long ass list. Knights of the Cross, Knight Templar, and Knight of Malta, Knight of the Red Cross, Apprentice, Fellow of the Craft, Master Mason, Sovereign Grand Inspector General, Prince of the Royal Secret, Grandmaster, Masters Advitam, Knight of the East and West, Prince of Jerusalem, Grand Elect, Prefect or Sublime Mason, Knight of the Ninth Arch, Grandmaster Architect, Illustrious Knight, Intendant of the Buildings, Provost and Judge, Intimate Secretary, Perfect Master, Secret Master, Order of the Cross, Knight of the Holy Sepulchre, Knight of the Christian Mark, an invisible knight. I really don't like the intimate secretary. Yeah, that, I don't like how that sounds. I clung to that and I was like, that's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Red flag, red flag. And lots of these ceremonies required them to kiss the Bible. Yeah. You know how old that is? (laughs) Well, and how many people are kissing it? That's gross. Such a bad joke. So two weeks after William's disappearance, several public meetings were held that drew hundreds of people. Although initially designed to determine what exactly happened to William, they quickly turned into meetings that attempted to calm the fears of the public that at any moment they could be next. I mean, it's not untrue. Yeah. After these meetings, a panel was created called the Committee of Ten that sent out people into nearby towns to investigate William's abduction take down witness testimonies, and gather any information they could regarding his disappearance. Soon, surrounding towns created their own committees to gather further information. And during this hunt for truth, no government agencies, such as the police, were asked to step in as the general public now believed they couldn't be trusted and were in league with the Freemasons. Fun. During October and November of 1826, members of the committees traveled all over upstate New York and spread the story of William's abduction, which just confirmed the rumors and embellished them. Some even went so far as to say that his kidnapping ended in his murder in some occultish ceremony conducted by the Masons that ended with his throat being slit from ear to ear and his tongue being cut out. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. Soon, the fear of the Masons transformed into fears over the sanctity of the government, as many believed that this secret society had plans to overthrow the government from within. It didn't help that members of the Masonry, many of whom were political figures, began defending William's abduction, 
saying, quote, whatever Morgan's fate might have been, he deserved it. He had forfeited his life, end quote. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's really gross. It wasn't long before the public were demanding justice for William. And in October, a group of Masons were indicted for rioting and assault in their attempt to have David thrown into prison following William's abduction. In November, another four members were indicted for conspiracy to kidnap William. At least that was even able to get done. I'm actually really surprised. Yeah. Well, you have enough people pissed off. Shit's going to happen. Yeah, I suppose. In January of 1827, a trial was set in Canandaigua, New York, against the four members who conspired to kidnap William. Lawton Lawson, Eli Bruce, who was the one that went by the name of Foster, Colonel mm-hmm. Edward Sawyer, and Nicholas G. Chesborough. They were each sentenced to pretty lenient terms, ranging from one month to two years in prison. What? Lenient terms? with the charges only being for taking William against his will from one place to another. The Buffalo Emporium paper noted, quote, Lawton Lawson was sentenced to two years imprisonment because he was the mastermind. Mm-hmm. Nicholas G. Chesbro had one year's imprisonment. John Sheldon had three months imprisonment. And Edward mm-hmm. Sawyer had one month's imprisonment all in the country jail, end quote. So annoying. And although the public felt justice hadn't been served, one sense of justice came in the form of the closing statement read by Judge Enos T. Throop. His description of the men's punishment would go on to be reprinted in newspapers across the state, starting by saying that their crimes were, quote, daring, wicked, and presumptuous, end quote. These men had robbed the state of New York of one of their citizens and left the victim's wife and children helpless. Not only that, but they'd shielded others in their secret society from being properly brought to justice. And this is a quote from the Throop. Quote, okay. your conduct has created in the people of this section of the country a strong feeling of virtuous indignation. The court rejoices to witness it, to be made sure that a citizen's person cannot be invaded by lawless violence without its being felt by every individual in the community. It is a blessed spirit, and we do hope that it will not subside, that it will be accompanied by a ceaseless vigilance and untiring activity. We see in this public sensation the spirit which brought us into existence as a nation and a pledge that our rights and liberties are destined to endure, end quote. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I agree. With these statements, Judge Throop was acknowledging that even though the result of the trial wasn't a proper punishment for the crimes that they committed, it served as a rallying point for the American people in their goals to protect the core values of our nation. A $1,000 or $27,450 today reward was offered for information leading to William's whereabouts or his body, but it was never claimed. Probably in the sea somewhere. Probably. Or the ocean. It would be the ocean. Maybe the lake. It could be a lake. In an era when industrialization was rapidly changing the American landscape and the population boom of incoming immigrants was overloading eastern cities, many citizens were terrified of what all these changes in labor would mean for their livelihoods. The Masons became an easy scapegoat for people's fears. And in February 1827, a meeting was held by the towns of Batavia, Bethany, and Stafford, where they all resolved to no longer support any members of the Masonic fraternity in any elections moving forward. Wow. Yeah. That's a statement. Many Masonic political figures soon found themselves under attack. And not only that, but Masonic-run newspapers also began to feel public backlash. In fact, a meeting conducted by the towns of Pembroke and Alexander made a joint resolution to, quote, discourage the circulation of any paper, end quote, that refused to cover the events of William's kidnapping and the resulting trials. Which would probably have been all of those. Yeah. They wouldn't have wanted to run that. In February 1827, five months after William's disappearance, the anti-Masonic political party was born. Oh, damn. This gets crazy. Okay. By the end of the year, the party would dominate the polls in New York, electing 15 members to the New York legislature. In a surprising move, John Quincy Adams, who was the sitting president in 1828, declared that, quote, I am not, never was, and never shall be a Freemason, end quote. 
Dang. Yeah, which propelled the anti-Mason political party and the movement into the national spotlight. In the 1828 elections, the anti-Masons party swept the nation. Candidates would sit in state legislatures, become the first third party to send candidates to Congress, and elect half a dozen members to the House of Representatives. Has something like that ever happened again? Like, that, that is quite the feat to have a third party like that just get that much of anything. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. In October of 1827, a decomposed body washed upon the shores of Lake Ontario, and many believed that it was in fact the body of William Morgan. Even though another man had gone missing around the same time, a Canadian named Timothy Monroe, the body was buried as belonging to William Morgan. It wasn't long after this that Sheriff Bruce, who had been the arresting officer for William, he was the constable that went in and grabbed him, was removed from his post as sheriff and tried for taking part in William's kidnapping. He was sentenced to 28 months in prison for holding William against his will. Jeez. The anti-Masons became a force to be reckoned with, especially following the 1828 election in which Andrew Jackson, a proud Mason himself, was elected president. Not only could the anti-Masons make real change in government on a state and national scale, but they also had an enemy in the White House that they wanted to defeat. In November of 1829, Elihu Mather, who was one of the founders of the Batavia chapter of the Masonic Lodge, was indicted for conspiracy to kidnap and abduct William Morgan. The trial lasted 10 days and Elihu was eventually acquitted of all charges. But he was one of the ones that submitted the second charter. So Mm. William wasn't on it. Right. Convenient. Yeah. On September 11th, 1830, four years after William had been abducted from his home, the anti-Masons held their first national convention in Philadelphia. Delegates came from all over the country, including such states as New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Vermont, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, Ohio. Maryland, and Michigan. Yeah, so that whole pocket. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the problem with the party was that many of its members refused to compromise their beliefs in order to align themselves with other political (laughs) parties who opposed Andrew Jackson. Uh. So because of this, they refused to nominate a presidential candidate for the 1832 election and instead held a national convention in September 1833 that would become the basis of what political nomination conventions look like today. Oh, way to go, guys. Those suck. (laughs) Ruin things. By 1831, tensions between the moderates and the radicals of the anti-Mason party were growing to a fever pitch. In 1832, the party believed they had found the perfect presidential candidate in William Wirt, who was a former attorney general and a Virginia politician. Okay. Wirt was devoutly religious and had once been on a short list of Thomas Jefferson's to become his political heir in the party. Okay. Jefferson is quoted as once telling Wirt, quote, you will become the colossus of the Republican government of your country, end quote. Which which made me vomit a little bit. I really don't like the sound of that. Wirt believed that the flaw in American and Freemason societies was simple. They were systems where the few benefited at the expense of the many. Yeah. And he's, the, not, the, the, he's not wrong. <laughs> You're describing like pretty much all forms of almost every government body throughout history. Very few. Yeah. Very few that aren't like that. But sure, go off. Yeah. <laughs> there was one teensy weensy problem with having oh, worked no. run on the bill. He used to be a Mason and had never formally renounced them. Mm. Yeah, that's just the t- tiny problem. Yeah. Itty bitty problem. Although he was still elected to run for the anti-Mason party, he only won Vermont. And after his resounding defeat in the election, almost without a word, the entire party disbanded. Yeah. Even with the end of the party, this time in history left a lasting impression on the Masonic order itself. During the short time that the movement lasted which was roughly from 1826 to 1834, many Masons across the country denounced their membership and hundreds of lodges closed their doors forever. 
in New York State alone, around 400 lodges, or two-thirds of the ones in operation, became virtually extinct overnight. Yeah, that makes sense. By the 1840s, the movement had died officially. That doesn't mean that members of the anti-Mason party didn't go on to become successful. Millard Fillmore, a member of the New York branch of the movement who had been on board since the very beginning of the cause, was elected president in 1850, and William Seward became Abraham Lincoln's secretary of state. Hmm. And when it comes to the tale of William Morgan, no one knows for sure what became of him. There are theories that he was murdered, that he assumed a new identity and moved to Canada, and even that he was executed pirate style in the Cayman Islands. Too expensive. Yeah. To this day, the mystery surrounding his disappearance has never been solved. Sad. However, in 1848, a man named Henry L. Valance, who is a Mason, allegedly confessed on his deathbed that he'd taken part in the murder of William. Mm. He confessed his crime to Dr. John L. Emery that, quote, Morgan met a watery grave when he was dumped into the rapids of the Niagara River and swept over the falls. He made no remonstrances nor offered any resistance, his demeanor and acts being in all respects those of a man who has nerved himself boldly to meet a certain doom. We bound his hands behind him and placed a gag in his mouth. One of our number marched a few yards in advance and was followed by myself and the other associate between whom walked Morgan. We each had a hold of one of his arms above the elbow. A short time brought us where the boat had been placed. The night was pitch dark and we could scarcely see. Having arrived at a place sufficiently removed from the land the rowers ceased, in the bottom of the boat lay a number of heavy weights, all tied together by a strong cord. This cord I took in my hand and fastened it around the body of Morgan. Then, in a whisper, I bade the unhappy man to stand up, and after a momentary hesitation, Morgan was standing with his back toward me and apparently looking into the water. I approached him and gave him a strong push. He fell forward, carrying the weights with him, and the waters closed over the mass. End quote. I hate it. Yeah. As for William's widow, it said that Lucinda went on to marry a man named George Washington Harris. I could not find an exact date of when they married, but I know that at some point during their marriage, they divorced. And this is insane, and I swear to God, I'm not making it up. She went on to become one of Joseph Smith's, the founder of the Latter-day Saint movement, many wives. No. Yes. Oh, my god! And that they married sometime in 1838, making her 37 years old. Lucinda died sometime in 1856 in Memphis, Tennessee, at the age of 53. That's so young. She was, I think, she was his third or his fourth wife. Of the many wives that he ended up marrying. Gross. And lastly, on September 13th, 1882, a monument was erected by the National Christian Association in memory of William Morgan. The inscription reads, quote, Sacred to the memory of William Morgan, a native of Virginia, a captain in the War of 1812, a respectable citizen of Batavia, and a martyr to the freedom of writing, printing, and speaking the truth. He was abducted from near this spot in the year 1826 by Freemasons and murdered for revealing the secrets of their order. The court records of Genes County and the files of the Batavia Advocate kept in the recorder's office contain the history of the events that caused the erection of this monument, end quote. Hmm. And that is the unsolved story and the first conspiracy theory of the United States. Really? Revolving around William Morgan. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Thank you, Ashley. That was messed up. Now, don't any Freemasons come get me since I read aloud nope. all your different positions in the order. <laughs> I'm sure they've been altered slightly. That's not how it goes anymore. Maybe. We don't call them that anymore. Right? We are wizards That was hundreds now. of years ago. We are wizards, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Twisted Humans! Do you find yourself wanting to know more about the latest murder, conspiracy, cult, or haunting? Then this is the podcast for you. We're bringing the most intense stories that will keep you up at night. Join us every Tuesday for a glass of wine and a dose of true crime. I'm Alicia. And I'm Sierra. And this is Twisted Twisted and Uncorked. 
And this week's podcast plug is the Twisted and Uncorked podcast by our friends Alicia and Sierra. The pair are best friends from Nashville, Tennessee and Vancouver, Canada, and they share stories that are either unsolved, conspiracies, disappearances, or hauntings. They release new episodes every Tuesday. They also share a new wine or sangria recipe each week as a nice pairing for every case they cover. Awesome. So if you like to hear stories that are a little twisted, I encourage you to check out Twisted and Uncorked. Promise you won't regret it. Yeah. And this week's listener question comes from the Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Okay. And they want to know, where do you come up with all your funny memes? (laughs) Oh, that's you. (laughs) And who is the talent there? That's me. That's you, 100%. Actually, funnily enough, my friend Carol, she was like, who runs your socials? Like your Instagram. And I was like, oh, that's all Lindsay. And she was like, she is the coolest person ever. Like, she's so funny. (laughs) And I love her stuff. And I was like, I gotta tell her that. So I was like, yeah, I saw her. She's a social media marketing guru. All around funny lady. Yeah, I find a lot of the memes on Reddit, now that I've released my trade secret, and sometimes on Tumblr. Yes. I still use Tumblr. I'm looking at you, Josh. You made fun of me. Adults can use Tumblr. They can. Where do you expect all the emo kids to go? Right. We need the darkest, deepest corner of the internet to express ourselves. Where do you think I find all my awesome Loki gifts? Where are you? (laughs) (laughs) Tumblr. So what's something good you'd like to share this week? So I can stop talking for a few minutes. (laughs) Sure. Something good this week. It's good and it's a bittersweet kind of good. This week was my last week at my job at the university. And it was good because I actually got to see some people that I haven't seen in a year and a half. And we talked about meeting again soon when I'm able to move back closer to the cities. But I start a new job tomorrow and I'm really excited and petrified. And they gave me like a shiny new computer. It's thrilling and intimidating at the same time. So I think I'll be good. It just first day needs to happen. You know, like your first day. Yeah, I get that. The first day jitters. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's like starting. It's like starting at a new school. You're like, I hope everybody likes me. Yeah. Where am I going to sit with lunch? At my virtual lunch. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. That's how I feel. What about you? What's a good thing? So. It's both a good thing and a bad thing. So <laughs> it's a thing that happened that had a good ending. Okay. So this past week, I got my kayak, and it's <laughs> it's like an origami kayak. So we took it out for its maiden voyage mm-hmm. last night on Comfort Lake by us, which is a pretty like quiet lake. And I assembled it myself. Everything looked good. I got in it. And it was pretty, I mean... I felt very low to the water, like very close to the water, which I'm a little uncomfortable with, but it rode fine. Yeah. So I was like two thirds of the way around the lake when I heard a snap and and then my butt started to get very wet and I was like, fuck, something's not right. Mm -hmm. So I started trying to figure out like what happened Mm -hmm. without like turning around too much in the kayak. Right. To create more water. And I couldn't figure it out. And then, of course, at that point, like a speedboat went by like close enough to me where like the waves came up. And because of the motion of like the waves hitting my kayak, it started to like fill up even faster. So I ended up just kind of like purposefully building it up so I could bail out. Like I leaned back. Okay. And kind of pushed off of it so I could, so I wouldn't Mm -hmm. be in it when it sank. Okay. And... I had been staying close to the shoreline for a reason. Yeah. And thankfully, like, I was able to stand up in the water to bail it out. I was wearing my life jacket because I'm not an idiot. And I figured out what had happened. So I fixed it. But I was, like, out there by myself for, like, 10, 15 minutes before (laughs) people that were with us, like Thomas and the girls and then one of our friend's daughters, like, found me. (laughs) Oh, man. So, but during that time I had fixed it, you know, I'd, and then like rechecked everything to make sure that it wouldn't take on water again. And I'd gotten the bulk of the water out of it. It was a huge cluster, but it's a good thing because I was able to fix the problem. I didn't freak out when I had to bail out, Mm -hmm. even though I am terrified of open water. Yeah. 
So yeah, I'm proud of the fact that I kept my cool and was able to figure it out that I like before I even was going to bail, I made sure everything was like properly secured to the kayak so it wouldn't sink or float Mm -hmm. away from me when I bailed. So I kept my cool. That's awesome. Let's shut her down. You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Instagram at yieldcrimepodcast. You can find our episodes on YouTube. And if you'd like to send us something in the mail. We love mail. You can. We're like blue. We have a P.O. box. Heck yeah. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. Not going to sing this song anymore. I don't want to get sued. Woo! Yay! But you can write to us at Yield Crime Podcast, EO Box 341, Wyoming, Minnesota 55092. You can also email us at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions. Anything else fun you'd like to send us? Mm-hmm. Next week marks our birthday month. So hashtag Team Trampoline. I'm waiting for you guys. Sam. Yep. It'll fit in the PO box. We'll make like- it fit. We'll make it fit. I feel like. I feel like we need to make a team trampoline, like, merch item. Just a bunch of, like, Victorian ladies jumping on a trampoline. Oh, man, that'd be hilarious. Or, like, a really poorly doctored version of Willie jumping on a trampoline. Like, like the two mediums aren't even the same, and Willie's, like, a stick figure dog. (laughs) Team trampoline. I'm totally jumping on this trampoline. It's got, like, a 90s starter hat. With like sunglasses, <laughs> like roller skate, roller blades, <laughs> team trampoline. So a great way to support the show if you can't do so financially would be to leave a five star rating and review, such as this one from our friend Lorraine. And she uh, submitted this via Apple Podcasts. And she says, easy listening, five stars. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy this podcast. The hosts are super easy to listen to and the conversation flows so well. The stories they pick are interesting and well-researched. They know their stuff. Thank Thank you, Lorraine. Lorraine. You can also support us financially if you chose to do so. Um, Buy me a coffee. You can leave a one-time donation in any amount. You can also support us monthly on Patreon by becoming a patron for as low as a dollar a month. That'll get you early ad-free access to all of our episodes. Mm -hmm. And you can also rock some of our merch by going over to our Public store. We're trying to add new designs as often as we can. There might be a trampoline one, <laughs> a birthday design. Coming soon. Just for, the, for the month of August. Yeah, maybe we'll have a, an August birthday design. Team yeah. trampoline. Have one every week. And on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale. As old as crime.